You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. James chapter 2 is where we're going to be, and as you find it, go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of the scripture. James chapter 2, and I'm, we're, gonna, we're, we're back in James 2, it's, we've had a few weeks off, and the last time we were in James 2, we looked at the relationship between faith and works, and I, I had a basket, just asking the question, what's in your basket? You know, uh, you know if, you're a, if you're a fruit tree, there should be production. And, and uh, you say, well, you already preached about that. But this is such a vital linchpin in James's letter that we're going to talk about it again tonight. And um, talk about faith that works. That's what we're talking about. And um, we started in verse 14 last time and essentially then just stopped there and looked at other scriptures that support this thought that you can say you've got faith all you want, um, but it's your works that proves it. And we're not saying that works saves you. We're saying that your works will reveal or demonstrate how genuine your faith is. And, uh, and so we're going to talk about that again tonight. And just there's so much here that couldn't fit it into one. But hopefully we'll be able to fit it in tonight. And read down in for beginning of verse 14 down through the end of the chapter. James 2.14 says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? Or can that kind of faith save him? That's the question. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful for the body to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead. Being alone. And understand that phrase. He's saying, he's talking about dead faith. And that's, those aren't my words. Those are Brother James's words. And dead faith, that's a serious indictment. He says in verse 18, Yea, a man has, may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. I'll reveal my faith through my works. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. Good for you. The devils also believe and tremble. So maybe not quite a, a good for you. I mean, a little bit of sarcasm. I'll do as well, but the devils also believe and tremble. Um, verse 20, but wilt thou know, O vain man or empty man, that faith without works is dead. Dead faith, once again. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect and we'll, we'll look at what that means tonight and the scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And these are helpful verses, but also often misunderstood verses. But if you read the context and you understand 
um, what the Bible says about salvation, then you cannot confuse this issue. Right. It's salvation by faith alone, but James comes along and says, you can say you have faith all you want, but if you don't have works, yeah. Yeah. then your salvation has a big question mark right. after it. And I'm not trying to get anybody to doubt tonight, but a little self-examination is not a bad thing. And that's what James is trying to get us to do. Let's pray and ask him, or ask the Lord to help us work our way through this. God, we certainly need you. I need you. And I pray that you give me wisdom as I convey some of these truths. God, I love you. And I need you. And we pray for your blessing on your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'll ask you the same question I asked last time. Do you have faith that works? James introduces this idea of dead faith, and, and we saw him. He actually mentioned it three times in verse 17 and verse 20, and also in verse 26, where he's talking about faith that's dead. And the, the idea is a person having faith that produces no good works, like a, a dead tree. And you've had a dead tree or a dead uh, a dead plant, it doesn't produce fruit. Or a, a dead person, a, a body, it won't produce signs of life. And James is trying to get his readers to understand that what you do is more indicative of how genuine your faith is than what you say. And the harsh uh, conclusion that James comes to is there are those who claim to have saving faith, genuine faith, but their faith is actually not living faith. And, and before you think it sounds strange, the last time we looked at a number of passages to show that this is a consistent teaching in Scripture. This is not just a one-off where James throws out this idea and nobody else buys it. We looked at John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says, where are your, where are your, your fruits of repentance? Uh, we looked at John, or Matthew chapter 7. Jesus Christ himself, himself said that not everyone that says they follow Jesus are actually saved. And, and there will be some that say they follow Jesus and they'll stand there and say, but look at the works that, that we've done, but they never had genuine faith. Uh, we've talked about how in John 2 that there were those that believed, but Jesus didn't commit himself to those that believed um, because their, their belief was a shallow belief. It was belief in him um, as God, but not belief in him for salvation. And the next chapter, John 3, he's talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, what, shall, what, what have I got to do? And he says, you must be born again. And so Nicodemus was one of the many that, that were following Christ and had believed that this has got to be the Messiah because of the miracles that he's done. But their, their faith wasn't saving faith. And there's a difference between just believing something and placing your trust in something. And so James then um, tells them, you know facts about God, and, and yet where's your true faith in God? And his point is, he's saying, prove it. He's saying, where's the evidence? You know, like the, like the state of Missouri, the show me state. He's saying, show me. And, and not that James is the one that you answer to, but he's trying to get them to examine their faith. Because he knows if we have a false sense of salvation, then that'll be, that, that'll be devastating to our lives if we've got confidence in a, false in a false faith, and yet we've never truly placed our faith in Jesus Christ. So there's an online trend right now that uses this phrase, and maybe you've seen it. It, it, it uses the phrase, tell me without telling me. 
And I don't know if you've seen it. I, I, I've seen it on, on Twitter, um, but I, I don't know if it's on other platforms. But tell me without twelling, telling me. And the idea is that you present an image or you post an image that tells a story without having to use words. And so, you know, I, just so you get the idea, I was going to show you one. Um, we'll show this one. Tell me you're in South Dakota without telling me you're in South Dakota. You know, the wind obviously tells the story, right? So that's the idea. Tell me without telling me. We've got another one here. Tell me you have kids without telling me you have kids. You know, you walk into somebody's house and it looks like that. You don't have to tell me that you have kids. I kind of know already. And maybe some of you have had disasters like that at your house. You know, that's the idea. And you can turn those off. I just, just to give you the idea of this thought. And, and as I was thinking about the concept of James 2, it struck me that it reminds me of that, of that thought. Tell me without telling me. Because James' point in James 2 and really in the entire book is that there are certain tests of life that reveal what you truly are. And in many ways, James' way in this book is James' way of saying, tell me you're saved without telling me you're saved. See, because a lot of people will say, yeah, I'm saved. Well, James says, but tell me you're saved without telling me you're saved. Don't just, don't just speak it. Don't just claim it. No, show me somehow. And it's amazing to think that, that this early on in Christianity, there were already plenty of people that were claiming to be Christians that bore no evidence. I mean, this isn't long after Jesus Christ. Christianity was fairly new. There, so, but there were already some with dead faith, even in James's day. And if it was a problem then, it's still a problem now. You know, the, I, I believe that the greatest problem today in our country and in our churches is that there are too many people that are Christian in name only. They claim Jesus Christ in word, but they couldn't be less like Christ in works. And if there's a scale of worldliness, let's just say there's a scale of worldliness over here and holiness over here. And so you've got worldliness, the culture over there, and you've got holiness over here. Um, I would say that as Christians, ideally, God's people ought to be leaning heavily over to this side. And yet I would, I would uh, propose to you that there are many people that claim to be Christians and they lean pretty heavily over to this side. Meaning that culture sets their trends and culture determines how, how they dress and culture determines what they listen to and what they watch and their pastimes. You've got this scale. And listen, I'm not trying to be a Pharisee today. I'm just saying naturally speaking, if you're a child of God and that's worldliness and that's holiness, I'm telling you, at least for myself, I'd much rather be closer to that side than that side over there. That's where the culture is. That's where the, those that, that don't believe in Jesus Christ, and I'm not being judgmental toward them about that. If they're not saved, how could we expect them to be over there? But I would say to the Christians, if you're leaning more heavily over there than you are over there, it's time to do some examinations. It's time to examine works as, do we reflect our culture more than we reflect holiness? And as followers of Christ, um, then God help us. If we're closer to that side of the scale. But that's exactly what James is dealing with. I believe he's, he's already to the point that he's telling his readers, tell me you're a genuine Christian without just telling me. Show me somehow. 
Right? Give me some evidence. And basically, tell me without words. Tell me with your works. Tell me you're saved without telling me you're saved. See, our works reveal the validity of our faith. And if it's real, your works will reveal it. And many people maybe struggle with this thought because they think it sounds wrong. And they say, you know, but Paul, he talked about, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not of works. Well, James would say amen to that. And he'd sit right out there in Paul's preaching and say amen. And people assume that James and Paul are fighting about this subject. But really, I heard one commentator said, no, they're not fighting with each other. They're actually standing back to back. And they're, they're fighting against arguments from both sides. See, Paul is dealing with those that have not been saved. They haven't heard the gospel. They're trying to figure it out from the very beginning. These are babies over here. James is dealing with these Jews that have been scattered abroad, but they're claiming to be saved. They're claiming to be brothers and sisters. And so they're not facing the same argument, and they're certainly not contradicting each other. You know, it's possible to have, so here's what we have to come to the conclusion of. It's possible to have dead faith. So James then asked the question, if someone says they have faith without works, can, can just saying that you have faith, can that actually save a person? And the question is, can that kind of faith save someone? When he says, what doth it profit my brethren, though a man say, say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? And the idea he's asking, can, can that kind of faith save him? If someone just says they're saved... And they have no fruit to show it. Is, is that really saving faith? That's the idea. And he, he's not trying to cast doubt. He's asking a very solid, very helpful question. You know, the kind of faith that he's talking about is the kind that's all talk and no action. The kind that claims, you know, talks big and claims to be genuine, but there's never been proof. And so he gives examples then of, he gives examples of two kinds of dead faith and then one living faith. And I want to just go through these examples here today and, and try to explain these and, and then just put ourselves in a category. He, he starts with, we'll just call it dead faith. And that is what we just read about when you have more words than actions. Dead faith is when you have words but no actions. And then he gives this example to test yourself with. He says, if a brother, verse 15, or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give, them, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? So he gives this illustration of a poor believer uh, coming in and into the church and they don't have proper clothing. And when he says naked, it doesn't mean they come in with no clothes. It really means there's not proper clothing. And, and back in that day, it would have been much more difficult to come by proper clothing, especially when it was cold. And so proper clothing, if they come in with no proper clothing and they come in and they don't have food. And so here's the example. What are you going to do? And in the example, then, the believer says, I wish you well, brother. Very piously says, may, your, may you be warm and may your belly be full. And then you walk out the door. Yeah, isn't that a blessing? See, James then says, what good are those words if nothing is done? And what profit is it? What use is that? It's a totally worthless thing to say because your words have just been meaningless and there's been no action behind it. 
the visitor doesn't leave any warmer, the visitor doesn't leave any fuller, or the brother is probably really what it is. He didn't leave fuller, he doesn't leave warmer than he came in because all you did was talk. And word is, words have never put clothes on backs, words have never put food in bellies. John said in 1 John 3, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? You know, so John takes it a step further, and he doesn't say it's not just a lack of faith, you don't even have God's love in you. He says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love works. Real love is going to show up in our works. It's biblical to meet the needs of those that have them. But you can't meet those needs with words. Now, some, now are there needs you can meet with words? Absolutely. A kind word, um, you know, you've, those things go a long way. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about physical needs. And so at its core then, this example is of someone who claims to be compassionate toward those in need but isn't really. So let's examine ourselves. Uh, how, how are ourselves? How are we doing at demonstrating compassion toward other people? A couple of months ago, I, I preached a number of messages on the Great Commission and reaching our community. So, how many times have you handed out tracts this summer? And how many times have you come out to visitation this summer? I'm not saying that's the measure of success, I'm not saying that's the measure of spirituality. But it's a question that we should ask ourselves. You know, because we say we have compassion, and there may not be always be opportunities to meet physical needs, but people all around us have spiritual needs, and we say we have compassion, and we say we have faith, and we say that our love works, but when's the last time we had compassion on somebody that had a spiritual need? And how many guests have you followed up with that visited? And how many families have you invited to lunch to just talk to and get to know? You know, we can see the clear violation of genuine faith when someone says words that won't buy clothes or put food on, some, in, on somebody's, in somebody's mouth. But don't we do the same thing when we express compassion on the laws um, but never take a step to follow through? And listen, I know that's convicting, but it's convicting for me too. You know, and, I, and we, we've got to examine ourselves. That's what James is trying to get us to do. He's trying to get us to take the test. And once we take the test, boy, you, when you start failing the test, you're like, I don't really like this test. But that's why we need the test. That's why we need to see it. And listen, I'm not saying your faith is dead. If we're talking about salvation and you've never had fruit or evidence, that's what you need to look closely at. But I am saying, are we talking a big talk, and yet when it comes to fruit, when it comes to evidence, when it comes to demonstration of God's love and faith and love works, are we operating as if we have dead faith? You know, if you do the same thing in other areas, then, then, then you may have saving faith in regard to salvation, but is your faith dead in the area of compassion? Is your faith dead in, in the area maybe... Of, of souls is, is your faith dead in the area of being a friend people have needs and people, people long for those needs to be met and where are those needs going to be met but through a church family 
You know, what's your focus when you come? You know, you may have salvation, but is your faith dead when it comes um, to edification? That you come to church, you're like, well, feed me. Show me what you got today, because I need something. Well, sometimes I think if we would just flip that around and say, God, show me who I can bless today. We might find ourselves a lot more fed than when we come in asking for or telling God, hey, you better feed me. I need something today. No, if our mindset was more, no, how can I be a blessing when I come? And who needs my help? And how many times have we passed somebody in the hallway who just needed a kind word? And, and we didn't even give him that. Remember the message from the first part of this chapter. It was about those that come in and having partiality toward the rich and, and not, not showing the same grace toward those that are poor. And the, the, the summary of that message when I preached it was this. It's we, if we've been made by mercy, let's be marked by mercy. If God showed us mercy and salvation and he was impartial to us, then how dare I turn around and show partiality to somebody else? If I've been made by mercy, I should be marked by it. So dead faith, when you have more words than actions, you, you could call it head faith. Head faith you know, knows the words and has the experience and was raised in church and knows the drill and knows the jargon. But look at what James says about this kind of faith. It's just kind of up here. It's just words. Look what he says in verse 17. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. You know, dead faith is lonely. Faith that's dead is lonely faith. There are no works to accompany it. You know, they say uh, opposites attract. One of the ways that my wife and I are most different there's a lot of ways that we're most different, but one of the ways we're most different is when we're home, uh, when, when I'm home alone or she's home alone, okay? When I'm home alone, I've got like a 48-hour threshold, and after that, I'm like, I need somebody else. <laughs> and usually it's because I need something ironed or I need food, you know, whatever. No, I don't do good alone. I just don't, okay? I admit it. My wife, on the other hand, maybe it's because of all the demands of children and, and ironing and food from me. You know, if she, if she had a week at home alone and didn't see anybody or whatever, she would be like, that would be vacation for her. <laughs> see, we're opposite in that way. I'm not good alone, and she, she kind of likes to be alone. But you know what? When it comes to your faith, I hope your faith isn't lonely. I hope your faith isn't alone. Because if your faith is alone and there's no works to accompany it, boy, that is a bad place to be in. James says it's dead faith. Faith being alone means it's dead. And if there are no works, that's no good. Specifically applied to this example then in verses 15 and 16. If you say you have faith but you have no compassion on those in need, that's lonely faith. James calls it dead faith. So let's examine ourselves and compare ourselves. How are we doing when it comes to compassion to those in need? Because if we have no compassion, we may have dead faith. And that doesn't mean we're not saved, but you better examine it. Because I may be saved if I have dead faith in this area. I better fix that because I'm telling you, I don't want dead faith. See, how are, how are we different than the Levite and the priest who walked by their own brother on the path while the Good Samaritan actually stopped to help? You know, our words say compassion, but our actions say complacent far too often. 
So where are the acts of love? Where are the love works? Is your faith alone? So that's the first. And then Warren Wiersbe kind of, he set these up in a, in a good way. I like the way that he did it. So I'm going to kind of follow at least the headings here. Um, the second one he says is demonic faith. And this is pretty interesting in verse 19. He says, thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. And he says, so devilish faith is what I'm calling it. It's that when you have faith that only produces emotion. See, dead faith is when you have words, but no works. Well, devilish faith is when you have faith that only produces emotion. And so think about it. He gives this example of dead faith, and he gives a shocking statement. And sometimes, you know, you have to say something shocking to get somebody's attention sometimes. Like when I was little, I mean, my mom never used my middle name unless I was in big trouble. And then I'd hear Jason, Kyle... And I knew it was all over for me, okay? And maybe your parents did that for you too. Sometimes you need kind of that shock to your system. That's what James does. See, he says, even Satan and his demons have some level of faith. And it's just interesting because the reference here, the thought is likely based on Deuteronomy 6, uh, the Shema, which is what the Jews quote every day. When the Lord our God is, is one Lord and it goes into the, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul. This is something that every good Jew will quote every day. Uh, this is a part of their religion. It's a part of their belief. You say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Amen. Let's proclaim it. We believe in God. He's, there's only one God. Uh, God. You know, these good Jews, hey, yeah, that's great, James says. That's great that you wake up in the morning and you affirm that there is one God in heaven. Good for you. The devils also believe that. And they tremble. You know, so Satan and his demons believe in the existence of God. Did you know that? Did you know there are no atheists on Satan's team? There's no agnostics with him. They believe in Christ. They believe he's the son of God. They believe in hell, according to Luke 8. They know Christ is the judge, according to Mark 5. They, they even submit to the power of God's word, if you read the Gospels. And if you read that description, you might assume that, the, that there are devils bearing more fruit than Christians. That's what James is trying to get their attention with. You say, that's really harsh. I'm just using James' example here. You know, he says, they believe and, all, and they tremble. Meaning, they don't just even have head faith. It's not just head faith for them. Their emotions are affected. They believe that God is God and it's affected them and that they're trembling. They're terrified. You know, a lot of people believe they have genuine faith because they have an emotional experience. And there are entire belief systems and entire denominations built on emotional experiences like, like speaking in tongues or the sign gifts and healing and voices from heaven. And it seems authentic and it seems exciting, but I'm just telling you, be careful of it. Because we have, according to 1 Corinthians 13, all of those things are ceased and we have God's revealed will for, uh, will for us. This is God's closed revelation of himself. This is more trustworthy than the experiences going on at some of the churches in Sioux Falls today. We have God's word and this is what you can trust. An emotional experience doesn't point to genuine faith. That's what, that's what James is saying. You can believe and you can feel that doesn't mean you have genuine faith. 
See, the devils have enough faith to be emotional, but that doesn't mean that they have saving faith. And, and we're moved by many things, aren't we? I, I mean, sometimes it, it's, been, it's funny sometimes when, if we're watching a movie as a family, like an animated movie, and, and, and it becomes the emotional point, you know? They always try to get you. And as dad, I'm normally the one like, oh, no, I'm fine, you know? It becomes an emotional point, and, and I always look over at my kids, the ones that are most likely to cry, and I just stare at them. And, they'll, you know, and I see the emotion, like, welling up. And, I'm just, and they know I'm staring. And then and it, usually they look at me and say, Dad, stop it, I'm not crying, you know? I don't know. I mean, it's amazing the silliness that can move us sometimes, isn't it? The, the emotion we can feel for something that doesn't really count and doesn't really matter. You know, but, but let's be honest. If you've cried about a movie or hearing a song or watching a play, but, but you don't have compassion on the lost, and you don't have a heart for people, and I mean, God help our priorities, it's the mark of dead faith to know it and to feel something and yet not take it a step to, to make it saving faith. It produces surface level emotion, but it's not enough to make a difference. And the devils believe in God. The devils are afraid. They simply have a fear response to God. But look what James says in verse 19. But wilt thou know, what wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? James calls the person with dead faith a vain man. If you have dead faith or even devilish faith or demonic faith, faith that may even affirm God, but you have no fruit in, in, in works, then you're empty, he says. It's vain. And it's like having a bank account that produces no interest or investing in stocks that have no return or, or even worse, maybe this is the most real life example, putting money in the vending machine and nothing comes out and you just want to shake it. You know, that's what it's like, James says, to say that you'll deliver, but nothing comes out. That's the life of the vain Christian. So, so far, then you've got dead faith, and you've got demonic or devilish faith, but then you have these examples of dynamic faith. And dynamic faith is when you have faith that produces evidence. See, James gives the examples of two Old Testament characters that definitely provided evidence. They produced evidence. They demonstrated dynamic faith. And it's faith that has power. It's faith that results in a changed life. And just think about the difference in the faith we've been talking about just tonight. You've got dead faith, which just talks. It's just words. It's just maybe the mind. And then you've got devilish faith, which is, it may touch the mind, and it may even touch the emotions. It may even be heartfelt. But dynamic faith involves the will, meaning you know something and you feel something, but when your will is engaged, then you actually act on the truth. There's action involved. It goes from the head and then to the heart and then to the hands, like we talked about last time. It goes beyond what you know and it goes beyond what you feel and it makes a difference in what you do. And that's the idea of the whole, Hebrews 11, the whole chapter is about those that don't just, they didn't just know about God and they didn't just feel something about God, they did something for God. They acted, they had dynamic, life-producing, fruit-producing faith because where there is dynamic faith, there will be good works. Every time. 
And so he gives these two, two examples and he talks about Abraham and Rahab and there couldn't be two more opposite examples. I mean, think about Abraham. This is God's chosen man to, to uh, you know, he chose him out of the whole world to, to start his people and, and, and give his promises to. Abraham was a Jew, the father of God's people. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was a godly man. Rahab was a harlot. Abraham was God's friend, the friend of God. We see right here, Rahab was actually part of God's enemies there in Jericho. But here's the wonderful truth about faith in God. It's open enrollment. The wonderful truth about faith in God is that everybody's eligible. The wonderful truth about faith in God is that God doesn't look at our family heritage and he doesn't look at our qualifications. No, he just looks at us and says, are you willing to let, let your, my, your belief in me go beyond your head and past your emotions and act on what you've been told? Are you willing to hear my word and obey my word? And if that's the case, then I will bless you just like I blessed Abraham. The story of Abraham is well known. He had saving faith. In Genesis 15, and the Bible says that he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And that word counted is a legal term, which means money was applied. You know, not literal money, but that's the accounting idea, is that money gets applied to this balance. Money gets applied to this account. And so spiritually speaking, then Abraham's faith, uh, when, when God counted his faith into righteousness, then God, God put his righteousness... ...on Abraham's account. Abraham was justified by faith. Paul affirms that in Romans 4. He talks about it there. So uh, Abraham was justified, Paul said. Which means that he trusted God. God applied his righteousness to Abraham's account. That's something that sinners could never do on our own. And I'm thankful that God justifies us. That it's not up to me because I could never make it happen on my own. But then James uses another account... ...in Abraham's life... To say that he had saving faith. And he talks about his willingness to obey God and, and sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22. So then you're thinking, well, what, which one is it? Was he saved by faith in Genesis 15 or, or, or by his works in Genesis 22? Well, the two work hand in hand. See, the private transaction between God and Abraham in Genesis 15... That's when Abraham was justified by faith. That's when he was saved. But his faith in God was demonstrated by his works in Genesis 22. That's the idea. It's not that, that God says or that James is saying that Abraham was finally justified when he finally obeyed God and was willing to, to, to take Isaac and sacrifice him. No, no, Paul says that he was justified by faith in Genesis 15, but it demonstrates his faith in Genesis 22. The two are not contradictory. They actually work hand in hand just perfectly. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, by faith he was justified before God and his righteous de righteousness declared in Genesis 15. But by works he was justified before men and his righteousness was demonstrated in Genesis 22. D.L. Moody often said every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. You know here, dynamic faith should produce something. And, and, and it's not the works that save you any more than Abraham was justified by faith. But, 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 it, but it should prove it should justify you before others. 
It should demonstrate that something changed back here. And, and, and I'm just revealing it to you. In many ways, it's the same thing that happens in our baptistry. Every time somebody stirs the water, you know, the transaction is between them and God at a previous date. But when they get into that baptistry, it is demonstrating the fact that I've been justified by God. And I'm just now, I'm just revealing that to the rest of you as a church family. You know, the other example then that James uses here is Rahab. And, and you can read about her in Joshua 2 and 6. And you know her story. Many of you, they sent spies. The children of Israel sent, sent spies into Jericho. And the spies met Rahab. And, and she hid them. And she basically said, listen, I believe in your God. You know, she, was, she believed and she trembled. I mean, if you think about it, she had heard the stories. And she knew the power of the children of Israel. Or the, I should say, the power of the God of the children of Israel. And she believed and trembled, but her faith didn't stop at her emotion. No, she said, I'll hide you as spies, and I'll take care of you, and I will help you accomplish this. Just protect us, preserve us. See, Rahab heard the word, and she believed it, but, she, but not just lip service. She actually did something about it. And her works of faith meant that she and her family were preserved there in that moment. And then apparently she married an Israelite. Because if you read Matthew chapter 1, then Rahab was the great, 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 great grandmother of a certain king named David. Well, you talk about a story of God's grace. You know, here's somebody uh, who, who, was a, who was an enemy of God. She was part of the enemies of God. She had no more right to the inheritance uh, of the children of Israel and God himself than anybody else in Jericho. Yet she had faith and she acted on it. And because she had faith and she acted on it, she didn't just believe but her works proved it. That she got to be part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. It's a good picture of salvation there, by the way. And if you're not saved tonight, if you don't know that you're saved... God is not waiting for you to come qualified. He looks and says, do you have faith? And are you willing to place your trust in what only I can do? And if you are, then you can be a part of the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Come be part of the family. Rahab could have had dead faith and she could have believed in God intellectually. She could have had demonic faith and just felt something. But she had dynamic faith and she put her faith to action. So the obvious question tonight then is, do you have dynamic faith? What's your faith producing? I mean, consider how little information Abraham had when God called him out of the earth of the Chaldees. He had very little. And yet with that little amount of light, Abraham left his father and he left his, his livelihood. Abraham walked away from... Um, all of those things, he walked away from Ishmael, he walked away from the well-watered plains, I mean, he walked away, he was willing to walk away from his son Isaac, all of those steps of sacrifice, you know, if you ever wonder what faith looks like, look at Abraham's life, and yet, what did he have? He had a little amount of, of light, and I think about Rahab, what did she have? Well, she just had a little amount of light, you know what she had? She had this message that said, if you don't repent, and if you don't submit, um, these people are going to wipe out you and your family. And she said, no, I want faith. I want faith in a God like that. Very little light for both of them. And yet consider the returns of faith. 
So it's almost like uh, you know, a, a penny of light was invested in them, and yet out comes the, in the vending machine, this never happens. You know, usually you put money in and nothing comes out. But have you ever put something in and, something, and it's just a flood of snacks? It's like every little boy's dream. All the little boys in here are paying attention now. That's kind of what it was for God. You know, he put a little bit in Rahab and, and a little bit more in Abraham. And boy, floods of, I mean, dynamic faith pouring out. But I consider, though, what he's done in our lives. We have way more light than Abraham did. We have way more light than Rahab ever had. I mean, it's almost like he put $100 and quarters into our vending machine. And then, you know, the little bag kind of moves forward and then just stops. So he has to hit the side and the Cheetos finally fall. That's kind of the picture of many of our lives, honestly. We have light, we have investment, we know all of these things about God. He's poured everything into us. We know about Jesus Christ. We, we know the history. We have the cross. We look back and it's historically proven. And here we are, though, just kind of returning one bag of Cheetos at a time. You know, I wouldn't call that dynamic faith. I mean, if we're going to talk about the scale, and over here you've got dead faith and demonic faith and over here you've got dynamic faith I would certainly put Rahab and Abraham in this category over here that just a little bit was put in but a lot was coming out but I wonder if our lives such a silly just a terrible illustration but hey it gets the idea across but if our lives are vending machines I mean if we're talking about scales of dynamic to dead I mean God's poured a lot of us a lot into us. Jesus Christ, we're saved. We have light. We have his completed revelation. Poured himself into us. Bag of Cheetos. Why? When you start to think about what was produced in the dynamic faith of Abraham and Rahab, you start to feel pretty small about what's been produced in your own life. And I'm afraid that on a daily basis that many of us would be a lot closer to dead faith than we are to dynamic faith. And that what God has poured into us should be producing abundant, abundant amounts of returns. Yet compared to the light we've been given, I wonder if we may be much closer to this side of the scale. Listen, let's, let's examine ourselves. And we claim salvation, but where's the evidence? Do we only have words? Or have there been works to prove it? Because our works reveal the validity of our faith. And based on your works, then, the question today is how valid is your faith? And if someone was asked to make a conclusion about your faith based on what they see, what would they decide? Let's just imagine today a, a giant aquarium. Only it's not full of fish and water. It's full of e-ciders. And there's some giant examiner. And he just sits for days on end and watches us go about our business. 
And so, you know, he's watching, oh, there's Ken Austin. He's watching Ken live his life. And, and you know, over here is, is uh, Brother Chad and Jacob and, and Vicky. Jacob caused confusion a little bit this morning, but and Cassie Shirley, you know, you, he's got all these people and they're kind of walking around. There's little labels that have their names and he's just watching. And let's suppose that we're so small that he can't hear our words. And all he can do is watch us. So he watches us. I mean, when we get up, he watches how much time we spend with the Lord. And then he watches then on the way to work how we treat other drivers. Now you're meddling, preacher. That's what he watches. He watches us when we're in the hallway at work and somebody obviously walks by with their head down looking for some help. And you, as having Jesus, have an answer. But you're just so busy with your stuff that you kind of go to the other side of the hallway and your paths cross. And then he watches you when you go stop and get gas. And he watches you throw the money on the counter. And then, you know, with a car full of tracks, drive away. And then he watches you as you go to the store. And you, and you, and you don't think about your faith at all. He watches, you, uh, watches us when we get home. Here we are. Let's get convicted again. Watches us when we get home. And he doesn't see any, any, any family communication or fellowship. It's all entertainment. And, then, and so he's keeping track and he's making marks on this big notebook. And the giant examiner doesn't ever hear a word we say. All he does is watch our, watches our works. By the end of the day, how many of us do you think that, that that giant examiner, whoever he is, how many of us at the end of the day would he say dynamic faith? Check. Or would he put faith? Question mark. Dead faith, check. You know, demonic faith, they, they know it and they feel it, but, you know, if somebody couldn't hear your words and all they could see was your actions, what conclusion would they make about the kind of faith that you have? And you might say, well, my faith is private, that's between me and God, and I understand that sentiment, but take it up with James. Because James is the one who set the test up. And he says the greatest demonstration of faith is works. Not that works save you, but that works demonstrate that you've been justified. So listen, take a look. Not at your words, not at your family heritage, not at the way you dress. Not at your intentions, but look at your works, your acts of love, your fruit, your compassion on your tree. And tell me you're saved without telling me you're saved. Abraham and Rahab did. Could you? Listen, is your faith dead? And that you produce words but no works. Is your faith devilish in that it produces emotion but more emotion than works? Or is your faith dynamic? 
And that you produce works, evidence of saving faith. And I'm not trying to get anybody to doubt tonight, but if it causes somebody who knows they're not to come and submit themselves to Jesus Christ, then I'd say hallelujah to that. But I am trying to get you to a point tonight that you're not content with words anymore. And you're not content with emotions but that you will decide to step up in your faith and start producing works. Or upon examination, maybe then decide you've never been what you claim to be. You know what we need? We need more compassion toward the lost. And we need more concern for each other. And we need more spiritual interactions with each other. We need more fruit of the Spirit. Let's not settle for words and let's not settle for emotions. Let's be so productive that the examiner and everybody else, those people that are looking at us and recognizing us, which I'm telling you, our name is getting out there. We, we, we got people visiting all the time. I mean, this morning, people are full of it, full, fooling up. I mean, visitors all over the place today. And, and they're coming and they're starting to come. And listen, we could just be another church that knows, that has faith, that has intellect, and that faith that has feeling. But if we want to be a church that draws people to something they haven't seen before, then we need dynamic faith. Faith beyond head and faith beyond the heart and faith that from our hands pours out of us. And that people know there's something different about those folks over at Eastside. Let's be so productive and dynamic in our faith that people look at our works and say, you know what, you've told me you're saved without telling me you're saved. Because anyone can say, I'm saved. But only genuine faith will produce works that say, I'm saved. So do you have, Eastside, or do you have faith that works? Tonight's a good night to examine the level of our faith. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We'll have a verse of invitation tonight. I want, to, I want to encourage you to respond. Upon examination, what kind of faith do you have? Do you have dead faith? It's not producing much. Do you have demonic faith, which produces feelings, but it doesn't really go beyond that? Or is there dynamic faith in this room? I mean, where are, the, where are those that produce dynamic faith? I'm talking works that can only come because of, the, because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's time tonight to do some examination. And I hope tonight that you be open and honest with the great examiner. Because he is watching. And he does see. And he doesn't just listen to our words. He observes our works. Would you be willing to submit to his examination tonight? We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.